Well, thank you all for joining us. Sorry that we're four minutes late. We started a live stream and then it proceeded not to go to Facebook. So we had to cancel the live stream, fix it, and now we're on Facebook, so everyone should be able to view us now. Um, Father, let's go ahead and start with a prayer. I would love that. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of our faith, for your continuing to hand it on to us throughout the, throughout the ages, to continue to draw us ever and ever more deeply into your love, into our love for one another, our love for the saints in heaven, for all of the help and the grace that you continue to pour out upon us each and every day. Please help us today as we continue on studying in the Catechism to continue to appreciate our faith, to grow in our knowledge and our love of you, and to be able to share that faith joyfully with everyone whom we encounter. And we ask this through the intercession of both our Blessed Mother and St. Gabriel as we pray. Hail Mary. Full, Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus. Have mercy on us. Immaculate heart of Mary. Pray for us. Saint Joseph. Pray for us. Blessed James Alberoni. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Yeah, thanks for, uh, we were been talking about a patron saint, well, I've been talking about a patron saint for our series, um, and there's a... A blessed Father James Alberoni. He's an Italian priest. He is the founder of the Pauline family. So, like the daughters of St. Paul, St. Paul's Media, that all connects back to him. And he's called the uh, blessed or saint of evangelization essentially through modern technology, which at that point was, you know, newspapers and radio and print publishing. But we are evangelizing with modern technology, a little bit more high tech than what blessed uh, Father James Alberoni had. But I thought he would be a great person to intercede for us during this time. And it says he passed away in 1971. And, uh, yeah, I'm guessing even when, when he was late on things, it was more than four minutes. So we're probably okay. <laughs> the other thing I was going to say, you know, today is the perfect day for our second time coming together. Today is March 25th, 2021. It is the Solemnity of the Annunciation. And the other great thing about that, you know, so this is the day that the angel of the Lord declared unto Mary. She conceived of the Holy Spirit. That angel was the angel Gabriel, who, if I'm not mistaken, is the patron saint of communication, which would make a lot of sense because he bore the greatest message of all time, the fact that God was to become incarnate in the womb of our Blessed Mother. And as we dive in today uh, to this next section of the Catechism, I think both Michael and I are pretty excited, and we'll see how this goes, just because I have a feeling we're going to stop on a lot of different paragraphs today, because there is just some incredible stuff. You know, last time we talked about the fact that even just by natural reason, we can come to know a lot about God, but the problem is you can only get so far with that. And so this next chapter, chapter two, I mean, the title says it says a lot itself, God comes to meet man. And today is the day that he did just that in the flesh when Jesus Christ became man. So obviously it didn't all start there. Fulton Sheen talks about the fact that it was the most announced birth in, in all of human history. But you know, today being the Solemnity of the Annunciation, what a great day to study the Catechism and the uh, deposit of the faith. Exactly. And so as Father said, you know, you'll kind of have to watch last time because last uh, uh, last episode, if you will flows very nicely into what we're going to talk about today. The natural understanding of God, and now this is very much the supernatural understanding of God. 
And so I think we should dive right in with paragraph 51. And I'm actually just going to read paragraph 51. Um, I feel like we need to give each other like a quota of how many paragraphs that we can read. But because I love this paragraph 51 because it's very much a small gospel presentation. Oh, yeah. Like this is an introduction of Jesus Christ, an introduction to who he is as our Savior. And I know our Protestant brothers and sisters are very good with their gospel presentations. We as Catholics are not. I don't think I've ever really heard a Catholic, other than maybe a priest from uh, during a homily or something, give a gospel presentation in a certain way. But this is something so important for us and our way of evangelizing and sharing who the person of Jesus Christ is to be able to give that small presentation. So I would say real quick, even before you do that, mm -hmm. if you don't mind defining your term, what do you mean by gospel presentation? So I would define gospel presentation as essentially sharing the message of Jesus Christ or bringing Jesus Christ to somebody saying, do you know Jesus Christ? Let me tell you about who he is and have some sort of script in your mind of, you know, in the beginning with Adam and Eve, we fell to sin. We had this original sin. We were fallen. We could not enter heaven. But from the moment of creation, God had a plan for us for salvation. And that was through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ suffered and died for our sins so that we might enter heaven and reach him in paradise. Very nice. 30-second gospel presentation. But if somebody didn't know who Jesus was and why he's important, that would be a good tool to have in your tool belt to share with others as you evangelize. And, you know, I think the nice thing, too, is I stop you from reading your paragraph, but I want you to in a second. You know, the nice thing is, as we talk about this with the catechism and going through these paragraphs, Michael's absolutely right. Having that in your back pocket is so good. But the other nice thing about this is it's not only your sort of personal way of explaining that to people, which is an important thing. I mean, we all have like our own spin of way of talking about it. You know, it's like, it's, it's the same, it's the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But each of us in some of the ways that we communicate may sort of choose to emphasize something a little bit more than someone else. And the great thing about the catechism is you're going to have something to refer back to and you'd be like, hey, just read paragraph 51 of the catechism. It sums it all up so well that you have something else to point to and also your own personal, like, and I love this. Because the thing I'll say in reading over these paragraphs, I think Michael's going to agree here, like, there were so many times, like, yes, like, I just love being Catholic. Like, there's so many good things in the next 50 paragraphs that you can go back and reflect on and read with and then share with others, um, you know, to have that gospel presentation in your back pocket. For yourself and for others, it's uh, it's a great thing to have. So I won't keep stopping you. I apologize. That is okay, Father, because I'm sure I'll cut you off at some point today as well. I expect it. <laughs> Paragraph 51. It pleased God in his goodness and wisdom to reveal himself and to make known the mystery of his will. His will was that men should have access to the Father through Christ, the Word made flesh, in the Holy Spirit, thus become sharers in the divine nature. Now, this gospel presentation is a little bit different. Mine was more about sin, but this was about introducing himself to us, the really point of divine revelation, or really, as the title of this section suggests, God reveals his plan of loving goodness. Yeah. How amazing is that little phrase, plan of loving goodness? And did you notice this at the end, too, what he wants for us, thus to become sharers in the divine nature, that not only does he want to free us from sin. Like, I like to say this when we have baptism in the church. It's like, you know, ask what ha what's happening. We're washing away original sin. Yes, but it's more than that. Like, you also have the clothing with the white garment. You have, 
you know, the light of Christ being presented to you. It's like, yes, the house has been swept clean, but then we get to participate in the love of the Holy Trinity. We even become part of the body of Christ. We get to become sharers in divine nature. We've died with Christ in baptism. We rise to new life. And this also reminds me of the beautiful line that the deacon, if he's a mass, or like I had mass by myself or without the deacon uh, this morning twice, uh, when the water and the wine get mingled, it's by the mystery of this water and wine, may we come to share in the divinity of Christ who humbled himself to share in our humanity. I mean, to think about that, God has humbled himself in his goodness, wants us to share in that goodness that we might become partakers in his divine nature. So when someone says to you, like, what are you called to be? You know, or if someone tells you you're called to be a saint, it's amazing to me how many people are like, no, I'm not called to be a saint. It's like, well, what do you think he came to do? What do you think he wants for you? He didn't just come to make you like your version is how you are now, but just a little bit better, you know, not quite so garbagey. I don't know what the right word would be. Like, you're to participate in divine nature, and it's not us, like, deciding that for ourselves, but God, in his goodness and wisdom, chose to reveal himself that we might participate in his divine nature. It's incredible. And what this is all pointing to is the fact that he revealed it. We yeah. don't know this by our own reason. Yeah. We don't wake up one day and go, I'm supposed to be a part of God's divine nature. That just doesn't make sense for anyone. This is so extraordinary and really outrageous yeah. that if God and Jesus weren't a thing and somebody woke up and said that, we would all mock them ruthlessly and storm them out of town and maybe tar and feather them. I mean, maybe a couple maybe not years quite ago. Far, yeah. um, but we know this is true. This is a true fact about our faith right there in paragraph 51 that we should become sharers in this divine, in his divine nature. And the other incredible thing about this too, it's like as this gets expanded, and it will, to think about the way that he did it by dying on a cross. Once again, this isn't something that we just make up, you know? I mean, it, it's not the way that we as human beings would normally choose and go about this. And yet, God in his own goodness gave his only begotten son, you know, wants us to participate in the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, wants us to be partakers of his divine nature. Wow, it's great stuff. And, and now we've got all of salvation history to get through the I next know. couple of paragraphs before we even get to Jesus Christ. We've only read one paragraph today. <laughs> it's so good. Okay, go ahead. All right, so moving on to paragraph, uh, I think paragraph 53. If you have something in paragraph 52, please say it, but I'm jumping down to paragraph 53. No, no, 53 go for it. That's fine. It. Something I find really interesting is this term in here um, and, uh, where it evolves a specific divine pedagogy. Mm -hmm. I actually didn't know what the term pedagogy meant. It's a way of teaching. And then I used it in conversation with Father yesterday. I was flexing my theological muscles. Um, yeah, it's a method of teaching, but I looked up the Greek too because I know how much you like work looking at root words. Mm -hmm. And it comes from the Greek to lead a child. So the divine pedagogy, or essentially God's divine plan of communication, is he is leading us and communicating with us as a child. And a very interesting example of this um, that I heard just the other day, I was listening to a podcast. It's a spiritual retreat about St. Joseph by a Norburn teen priest in California. And he posed the question, why did God have to wait until that very moment to tell Joseph to flee to Egypt? Couldn't he have told him that morning, you know, hey, get your things ready. You're going to have to leave tonight. Couldn't he have planned for it like a week in advance? He told him 
that moment, or Angel Gabriel really told him that moment, said, get up and leave now. No questions, no details, just get up and go. And the only answer that I have for that is that's God's divine plan. He doesn't, and we see this in our lives all the time, and we'll see this a lot as we go through this snippet of salvation history, that God is not, he, he doesn't reveal things in our time. He doesn't reveal it when we want to know it or when we really even need to know it sometimes. He reveals it according to his plan to show and to test in some ways our humility, to test our trust in him. And we need to have that humility of St. Joseph to up and leave or up and do whatever he asks us to do when he asks it. And as you'll see, all these patriarchs and prophets and all these people that are part of this divine revelation, and especially the Old Testament, um, even really to the Gentiles, we don't even have Judaism yet for quite a bit of salvation history. Um, it's very much, this is my plan, and I need you to participate in this now when I ask you to. Mm -hmm. And that's very much being led like a child. I grab my son's hand say, I need you to do this now. And I just yank him and say, go, this. And he doesn't always do it, but I also don't always listen to God when he does it to me either. So we're all learning like children. And I like the phrase in here, God communicates himself to man gradually. And it's like this gradual revealing and understanding. When you think about it, I mean, that's kind of the way that any sort of human relationship works too. I mean, we have this unfolding over time of our relationships with one another. Um, like you look at a couple who's been married for 50, 60 years, their love is different than it was on their marriage day. Like they've gradually communicated themselves to one another, but that love has grown through the, you know, the good times and the bad, sickness and health, richer or poorer, you know, in that fidelity to one another. And the beautiful thing is, I mean, even though spouses can be unfaithful to each other, um, like that can happen. I mean, God is always faithful to us. Um, in fact, there's going to be a point in here where we get a quote. Um, let's see, it's quote number eight. So this is in paragraph 55. And this is from the fourth Eucharistic prayer, which to be honest, I don't use that often, but it's very beautiful in its poetry. And the line that uh, the catechism quotes from the fourth Eucharistic prayer is this. Even when he disobeyed you, even when he had disobeyed you and lost your friendship, you did not abandon him to the power of death. Again and again, you offered a covenant to man. So it's addressing our Heavenly Father. And the fact of the matter is that, you know, as he reveals himself to us, communicates himself to us gradually, uh, luckily, better word than that, providentially, in, in, in his goodness, we talked about in paragraph 51, he stays faithful even when we don't. Uh, because, you know, we'll talk about, you know, Adam and Eve, like right from the beginning, he gives us all of this. And what were they? unfaithful, chose to take matters into their own hand. Then you, you know, have the covenant of Noah when things had just gotten terrible. Um, but he, you know, pulls us out of that, you know, through the flood. He gives a covenant via Noah, which is going to come up here in paragraph 56. You know, time and again, like we, we turn our backs on him and time and again, he offers us a covenant until we reach the fullness of time in which he gives us the covenant in his own son, his son in his own blood. Um, it's incredible the fidelity of God throughout the ages. Very much so. And we see that fidelity very much in Adam and Eve. So the next, a good bit of the, this part of the catechism, um, it goes through the stages of revelation, as it says. 
in this kind of heading. And it talks about Adam and Eve, Noah, Abraham. So what we're seeing here is we're talking about God's covenants with man. Now, any youth out there who participated in Totus Tuus back in the day, we talk about covenants a lot, right? Covenants are promises that are made um, between God and man. And really there are, within a covenant, there really is agreements that God will hold up a certain end of his bargain and man, in response, is supposed to hold up a certain end of their bargain. Now, obviously, God is perfect. So God doesn't have any problem holding up his end of the bargain. We as men are not perfect, and we have a lot of trouble holding up our end of the bargain. And as we see in salvation history, when we lose or lack our end of the bargain, bad things normally happen. But God always picks us up and says, all right, we're going to try this again. All right, we're going to try this again. And spoiler alert, the covenant was, all covenants are ultimately fulfilled in Christ and will even be more so fulfilled with the final covenant of his coming coming okay. again. So we see in Adam and Eve, kind of going through a little bit of salvation history, right? God gave them everything. They had this perfected nature um, and he gave them one rule. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil at the center of the garden. Obviously, we all know the end of that story. They did, in fact, eat the fruit of that tree. And due to that, original sin came into the world. Death came into the world. The gates of heaven were then closed at that point. But what's amazing to me is that even at that point, immediately after Adam and Eve sinned, I mean, based off of scripture, we're talking four or five verses separation. He says what is called the proto-evangelium, the first proclamation of the gospel, basically saying that I am going to fix this. I have a plan to remedy this whole situation it might just take some time. Yeah. It says he communicates himself gradually. And you know, it's interesting, too, when you think about this, because, and I think I've mentioned this in a homily not that long ago. I don't remember when I did. But you know, you'll hear people say, like, well, if you didn't want him to eat from the fruit of the tree, why did he even make that tree? Okay, but maybe, in this communicating himself gradually, maybe he wanted to give it to them as a gift, you know? And so when they reach out and take it, you know, let's say imagine that it's December the 5th, and mom and dad have already gotten the, the presents wrapped and under the tree, and you just go in and just grab them and rip them open. Okay, you took it, but that, that inherently changes the relationship. Something is wrong there because you've not gone about it in the right way, not according to the proper way of receiving a gift and honoring the gift giver. And just taking things into our own hands does not lead to happiness and fulfillment. And thanks be to God, you know, as, as I said in quoting the Eucharistic prayer four, I mean, even when you disobeyed and lost your friendship, you did not abandon him to the power of death. God doesn't just say, fine, have it your own way. I mean, he continues to offer us, you know, throughout salvation history, he's offering these covenants until the one who comes, you know, not to wipe out the law, but to fulfill it in his goodness and love that we might participate in, you know, in his divinity. So good. I'm going to go on a small tangent here. So on, I've already have. Too. It was interesting, your analogy with the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I've never actually heard it that way. Uh, maybe he was going to give it to us, but just as, a gift. as a gift. I always heard it of, well, if we didn't have a chance to fall, then wouldn't we just be like robotic people that were created to love God with really no out? And if you don't have that choice, right? So that is ultimately part of a choice where we are loving God because Adam and Eve are perfect, but 
by having essentially an out, then Adam and Eve are giving a free gift of themselves back to God by not falling with the tree. So without having the tree, is that a choice of love or is that just kind of a forced love by not having an opportunity to sin in some ways? Hmm. So I don't know. I never heard your analogy before. I, I like think I could get analogy. into a theological debate with you about it if I really wanted to, but I don't know if I really want to right now. Well, and, yeah, and I don't know. Obviously, we're on a tangent, not specifically in this, but when you think about it, it's, you know, the serpent comes in and tempts them with the one thing that they don't have. You know, it's the equality with God, which Satan has, you know, wants to place himself. I mean, that, that original act of pride is wanting to place himself in the place of God. And so that is something that they're lacking. And so the very fact that they're not God, it's something that they lack. But are they lacking that? They yeah. were made in his image and likeness of God. They were lacking insofar as they are not him. It's the one thing that they could be tempted with. Mm -hmm. And so to reach out and take it, you know, is to take themselves and place themselves in the place of God, which is what the devil tried to do. Um, you know, one way or another, the cunning serpent, you know, had will try to have something to tempt them with. I like the analogy of the gift because it, it's sort of like, you know, it goes along with that. God communicates himself gradually. What are they? They're impatient. You know, it's like they want to take matters into their own hands. And so rather than being content with the relationship and working with it, they act against it. Um, in one way or another, I mean, any kind of relationship, there's going to be a bit of a give and take, and they just go against the rules. I don't know. I, I, I'd have to think about it further, but I don't know that I like they have to have an out. I mean, I, I agree. They're not just robots, right? But I don't know that it's like, okay, here's a chance to sin. Because it's not like God is like, here, I'm going to present a chance for you to fall. Like, I'm going to leave this open pit just in case. Like, I don't think it's that. I think it's, you know, because he, he's not trying to trick us or make things difficult. But it's, you know, I'm, it's this gradual unfolding of self and, and growing in relationship over time. And they step out of that and take out and reach. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I agree with that. Still, we'll get off the tangent in a second. But I want to dig into this a little bit more because if they don't have, maybe using out as a wrong term. but And that could if, be. If they weren't presented with this tree, did they have free will? I think, well, we'll put it this way. There is something that they lack. Like I said, you know, it's the one thing they don't have the, full, the fullness of in the garden is they are not on the same level as God. Because what does the devil say? It's like, you will become like God. So in one way or another, whether it's the tree or something else, you know, um, that's why I like the giftedness aspect of it. It's not God presenting a trick. It's just, you know, things will gradually be unfolded. They're not eternal in the same way that he's eternal. They're reaching out and taking things into their own hands. And so, hmm, I'm thinking on my feet. I don't know if I'm losing it. We'll have this debate next time and tune you into what, what happens at the end of it. I just don't like the phrase, the out. Okay. I, don't, I don't think that's good. And you know I am not very, no, 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 no. It's very okay. well it's okay. spoken. It's okay. He has a lot more public speaking skill than I do. I only do it like once a week. You do it every single day. But it, yeah, I just, I don't like, I don't like out. I'll come up with a better phrase. I mean, there has, I agree with you. There has to be something like they have to have free will and they do have free will. But nevertheless, I mean, like I said, I think the gift analogy works. Well, what is free will if you don't have an opportunity to turn away from him? Well, no, they do. They reach out and took the gift. 
Well, they did, but without that tree, would they have had the opportunity to turn away from him? Oh, I'm not saying that the tree shouldn't have been there. What I was saying is, you know, because I think sometimes you hear that criticism. Well, if you didn't want him to sin, why did you just do, why didn't he, why did he even create the tree? Or why didn't you just give it to him in the first place? I don't know. Like I said, maybe you wanted to give it to him later. Maybe it's something like that. So it's a going against the got relationship it. Okay. with God. I think we're coming at it from two We are. We, I think we're saying the same thing. As we normally are. Father and I do a very good job of having two very different ideas as a driver leadership type <laughs> and as an amiable leadership type. We start from two separate ends, but we always get to the same spot. And I think that's why we work so well together. I think so too. But moving on to Noah. <laughs> that was a very nice sneak peek into what we do on, in his office on a daily basis. It's good stuff. Um, coming into Noah, we see another covenant that God makes with Noah. We see the sin, enter, the sin continue to grow in the world. So much so that God is having to almost separate the people by languages and trying to keep them apart so they don't try to keep coming into this pride. Um, and they talk about, you know, this unity at the uh, Tower of Babel, this desire of pride to be like God. Actually, very much back to yeah. the, the tree that we were just talking about, the one thing that they feel like they are lacking is to be God himself. Let's read that, that paragraph, paragraph 56. Go for it. This state of division into many nations is at once cosmic, social, and religious. It is intended to limit the pride of fallen humanity, united only in its perverse ambition to forge its own unity as at Babel. But because of sin, both polytheism and the idolatry of the nation and of its rulers constantly threaten this provisional economy with the perversion of paganism. That, like Michael was saying, it's like, you know, us trying to make, you know, in, in the Tower of Babel, we're going to make a name for ourselves. No longer is it fill the earth and multiply. It's we're coming together. We're going to you know, take over things and rule the earth ourselves. We're going to make a name for ourselves. That's not what God created us to be. And, and so it's like to free us from ourselves and this sort of taking over everything and making a name for ourselves rather than receiving things as gift, rather than loving the gift giver which is ultimately what will make us happy. When you think about it, it's like it's this desperate grasp for control in a prideful way and refusing to receive things from God that ultimately leads to a darkening, a sadness, an overwhelming aspect by sin. And God frees us from that in the flood. Yeah, which I think is fantastic and amazing. And he gives us the sign of that covenant, which is the bow in the clouds, right? The rainbow, which we see every so often, even today, um, which is a sign of a beautiful covenant, which unfortunately has been distorted in a lot of ways. But that's a whole other tangent that we'll wait until we get to the commandments to go down. Um, I will say one thing. When you think about it, he set his bow in the sky. You know, it, 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 is, it is a weapon, and he puts it in the sky. The crazy thing is, like, now, you know, it's like it's turned on himself. And eventually he's going to come to earth and take on the pain of sin himself. And, you know, it is, it is especially in light of, uh, you know, the, the most recent Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith, the, you know, we cannot bless homosexual unions. Once again, just because someone has a same-sex attraction, it's not condemning them. We need to be careful, as Michael said about the commandments, you know, the gift of sexuality. It's a gift between a man and a woman within the context of marriage. But there is something very interesting about that, that, you know, it's like it's called the pride movement which is an interesting thing. And it's like this taking of the symbol of God saying he won't destroy humanity again, like taking this on himself. 
like that gets used as a symbol today in this sort of corrupted sort of a way. Once again, hey, we can all fall into you know, attractions that are not the way that they were intended to be, but God wants us to be happy, wants us to be fulfilled. And so what does he ultimately do? He takes on the pain of sin himself and dies for us on the cross. And that's part of where that, just that the, the incredible nature of that sign is that it's a weapon that is now like turned up. It's like turned on himself. I just always find that fascinating. No, that is fascinating. And I always forget that the rainbow is supposed to be re representing the bow of a, like the weapon. Yeah. Bow and arrow. Um, so yeah, I always forget that point. So that's a good, it's pretty good, powerful. Good point to remember. Um, another little tidbit that I want to bring up is a lot of times in this section they mention economy. Um, we talk about um, the divine economy, and later on we'll see the Christian economy. Just want to make sure we're defining our terms properly. We're not talking about anything monetarily speaking at this. Yeah. I recently took an economics class for grad school, which was quite fascinating. Um, but we're not, when we talk about economy, the real kind of definition of it is just an organized system or method. So this is the organized system or method of the divine plan, essentially. How is God bringing about the ends which he desires to bring about? How does Christianity, as we'll see in paragraph 66, how does the Christian economy or the method of Christianity bring about these goals? So don't get wrapped up in monetary terms when you see economy. This is about something larger than that in a more broader definition. But so we talk about Noah, and then continuing on within the covenants, we then see Abraham, right, the, the first patriarch. So when we talk about patriarchs, and I looked this up as well, we're talking specifically about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Mm -hmm. So Isaac being the son of Abraham and Jacob being the son of Isaac. And these are the three patriarchs of the Jewish faith. And God made a covenant with Abraham saying that you shall be the father of all nations and there shall be many people under you. And he essentially was the father of Judaism as we reckon, as we know it today. And so everything up to this point was really him talking to the Gentiles because we don't have the Jewish faith until we get to Abraham. But he's making that promise that you shall essentially be my chosen people um, under you. Also, another fun little fact, I really like paragraph 61. And it doesn't really have to do anything with salvation history, but I think it's just great it to remember. And it reads, The patriarchs, prophets, and certain other Old Testament figures have been and always will be honored as saints in all the church's liturgical traditions. So as we're talking about these people, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all the others that we're we get to. We're throwing David too. David. Just because I have a nephew named Noah and a nephew named David. So perfect. Okay, just make sure they're all included. They are saints in the Catholic tradition. So if you want to take, if you ever wanted to take them as a confirmation saint name or use them in litanies of saints or things, they are saints within the Catholic church, even though they didn't know Christ and they weren't Christian, which is really interesting to see. But what is a saint? But somebody who is in heaven. So all we're acknowledging is that these Old Testament figures are in heaven. There you go. Perfect. So looking ahead, so God forming his people, and I will say, you know, goes through uh, God forming the people of Israel, leading them out of slavery in Egypt. And it's interesting, we, as we film this, we're in the midst of Lent. And so to reflect on the Exodus and God bringing the people out of Egypt, you know, with the signs, parting the Red Sea, going through the desert, uh, forming the Ten Commandments, the people turning to the golden calf, the breaking of the Ten Commandments, you know, the, the gradual 
you know, ups and downs that happen throughout the desert. You know, we just had earlier this week the reading from Numbers where the people complain against God and Moses, and it always blows me away because they say, you know, you brought us out here where there's no water and no food, and we're tired of this wretched food. And it comes immediately after, there's no food. We're tired of this wretched food. It's really, it's like you have this manna from heaven. You know, it's right there. You're going through the clothes on you that you've been out in the desert for how long they're still not falling off in tatters and all this. And God is protecting them. They just won't recognize it. You know, and then Moses needs to make the bronze serpent, hold it up on a pole. When they look on the results of their sin, of their infidelity, it's then that they're healed. And, you know, it's this beautiful analogy of us moving through life. Like we're called to fidelity, to not turn to the golden calf, to not turn away. And time and again, God leading his people on and on and on, you know, gradually moving them forward, moving them from, you know, from Egypt through the desert to the promised land. And still, they continually complain against God and against Moses. Yeah, and that's that's kind of wrapping up this part of the catechism about salvation history. Obviously, we ended in like Exodus yeah. when we're talking about Old Testament. So obviously, there's a lot more that comes, but they're wrapping kind of all the prophets into this section. So we've got the patriarchs, and then we've got the prophets, all those who are coming and speaking the word of God, basically on his behalf. And they're part of that revelation, right? They are communicating to the people directly from God. And then we get to the paragraph pinnacle yep. of revelation. And this is the coolest thing, and I'm sorry to cut you off. No, On go for paragraph it. 65, it starts with the opening of the letter to the Hebrews. And it's a powerful opening when you hear this. It's this quoted, it's Hebrews uh, chapter 1, 1 to 2. In many and various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers by the prophets. So when you think about that, like just stop there for a second. He spoke to our ancestors through the prophets. It's saying that God used the prophets, you know, throughout the time to speak to us. So Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Habakkuk, you know, Hosea, like you have a lot of these different prophets that God spoke to his people through. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son. So Christ, the son of God made man, is the father's one perfect and insurpassable word. In him, he has said everything. There will be no other word than this one. So now, you know, you had these, was it many in various ways, God spoke to us through the prophets. But now, in the fullness of time, he's given us his son, the word incarnate. You know, God made flesh. And this is a cool thing. Today's the day, you know, that, that God became flesh, the annunciation. It's so great. But how, you know, incredible it is that, you know, that, that, uh, opening chapter of Hebrews saying that, you know, many various ways in the past God spoke to us through prophets, but now he's spoken to us fully through his son. And so now we have this full revelation of God, God, the word of God incarnate in Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man. And with that fullness of revelation, we are very much saying that is all the revelation. Mm -hmm. What Jesus spoke, and then as you know about in, in the New Testament, what we have in Scripture that we'll talk about in a second about um, passing on the tradition and teachings through Scripture, but that revelation, that specific, the specifics of God speaking to man directly, has ceased mm -hmm. through this public revelation of Christ. That was the fullness, and so when we get into paragraph sixty-six and sixty-seven, it's talking about how there will be no more revelation. There will be no more revelation from Christ, and. I find this very interesting, and I think this is important a lot when we see what's going on in the world today and different messages. 
it talks about private revelation and how that plays a part within our faith. Can we read 66 first? You I 66. love 66. This is this is like my favorite paragraph. All right, all so you're way. up to like five paragraphs, right? I think I only have one or two. So yeah, we're going to have to level this up. <laughs> I know. Okay, here's 66. This is great. The Christian economy, therefore, since it is the new and definitive covenant, will never pass away. And no new public revelation is to be expected before the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Yet, even if revelation is already complete, it has not been made completely explicit. It remains for Christian faith gradually to grasp its full, full significance over the course of the centuries. Why do I love that so much? Okay, we know that the fullness of revelation has been given us in Jesus Christ, right? And yet, even if revelation is already complete, we've been given the full public revelation, it has not been made completely explicit. It remains for Christian faith gradually to grasp its full significance. So this gradual grasping of full significance, you think about the history of the church, the unfolding of the faith with time. So you have like a saint uh, early on, like a St. Augustine, who's explaining things so beautifully. And then gradually with time, you're like St. Gregory the Great. You've got St. Thomas Aquinas. You've got, you know, kind of very much speeding forward. I was going to say, that was a big jump. Yeah, it was a big jump, and then I'm going to jump even further forward. But it's like, you know, in like the, the theology of St. John Paul II, you know, it's, it's not new public revelation. They're not doing new things. But the way that like a St. John of the Cross goes about describing different things having to do with the faith, it's like this beautiful unfolding and gradual understanding more and more without Scripture ever being changed, without tradition being changed. It's this gradual understanding and things being made more explicit. It's the, the ever ancient, ever new aspect of the faith that it's never going to get old and boring. And it's not as though, nah, I, I just understand it all. I mean, every time you go back to scripture, heck, you can go back to the catechism. Like there's something new that strikes you that's so incredible. Um, and just to see that and to see like the way that the church fathers have written on it, to see the way that St. Jose Maria Escriva explained this or that. You know, to, to see all these different things, it's like this gradual unfolding and understanding Christ better and better by our friends in the faith. I think would be a, a good way to describe that. And that's why we still have jobs. Because <laughs> if it was done and everyone understood it all, there wouldn't be a whole lot left for us to do. Or we wouldn't be doing this either. No. Um, but yeah, the gradual, and this is, comes back to that divine pedagogy, right? Mm -hmm. Of the gradual revealing of, not gradual revealing, but the gradually, uh, the explicitly explaining, if you will, of these teachings where the, so, uh, the scripture doesn't change, but we can understand it more fully. And we also know our world is changing. Mm -hmm. Some things that we have to deal with in our world, we were just talking about um, LGBT and the pride movement, these weren't as much of issues in the past. So we have to take what the Catholic theology is in, in the scripture and divine revelation, and because it's complete, what Jesus said can still apply to what we're dealing with today. We, and that's also how it's kind of ever new, because it's always speaking to something different as our world changes. But then many, many may ask, well, what about all the things that happen after Jesus? You know, like the apparitions at Fatima. I knew you were going to go there. I'm so glad you did. I, I knew, and I know you wanted me to go there. I do want you to go there. And the great part is that these are what we call private revelation. And I'm going to read a little bit of this paragraph. Um, Throughout the ages, there have been so-called private revelations, some of which have been recognized by the authority of the church. 
Fatima would be one of those mm -hmm. recognized by the authority of the church. They do not belong, however, to the deposit of faith. It is not their role to improve or complete Christ's definitive revelation, but to help live more fully by it in a certain period of history. So the point of this private revelation is to bring something back up and say, hey, remember this thing that you all believe within the faith? Live this out and you'll have a better life. It's almost, in, it's not the same as the prophets, but it almost kind of has a little prophetic feel to it. Mm -hmm. Prophets were really revealing something new, thus revelation. They were talking to the people directly from God. But when we have these private revelations, it's not necessarily something new. It's not a new teaching. Oh, look at this. We found this in the attic for a thousand years and we're bringing this back out. It's a, hey, you, remember all those things you're supposed to be doing? Shape up. And this is how you're supposed to do that. And obviously, Fatima being a great example, right? Pray for sinners. Yeah. Pray for the souls in purgatory. These are things that we knew the whole time. These Absolutely. were teachings of the church. Mary was just saying, hey, wake up because you need to start working on this or bad things might happen if you don't. And ultimately, I think uh, one of the ways that I heard Sister Angela of the Allianz and Santa Maria talk about it, kind of referencing Sister Lucia, who's one of the three shepherd children at Fatima, one of the seers, was that ultimately the message of Fatima can be boiled down to we need to grow in faith, hope, and love, which is part of the deposit of faith, but it's sort of like this re-emphasis for our time. You know, and it and it is. Yeah, and I'm so glad that you went there, and I didn't even have to. And so awesome. I didn't know where else you thought I was going to go, but that's perfect. That I mean, was the only logical conclusion. You were right. Okay. All right. So here's a problem, Father. We're we have 15 minutes left, and we're barely halfway through. So here's what here's what I would suggest, at least for today. We're going to go until we're done. Okay, that's fine. If you if you at home get bored with us or need to shut it off, come back and watch it later. But we're going to finish it. We'll try to do go as quickly as we can, but we want to keep on pace. So we're going to get through paragraph 100. Let's no do what. it. Let's do it. So then, then, right, we talked about Jesus Christ. And so then what happens after Jesus, essentially, is what we're talking about here. This transmission of divine revelation. So now that we have all of divine revelation, now that it has been completed in Jesus Christ, right, the fullness of it, everything that we need, it's done. Now we've got 2,000 plus years of church history and how does that go from Jesus' mouth to... In the Holy Land, at that. In, in the, the Holy Land. land. In the, I'm going to say, yeah, from Jesus' mouth, in the Holy Land, 2,000 years ago. Across space and time. Yeah, to 2021 in Salisbury, North Carolina, and now broadcast on Vimeo and Facebook. Like, how does it get from there to here, and we can be assured of the authenticity of the faith? And first, we need to understand that this is the truth. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. So what we get from Jesus it transcends this space and time because it is true. Um, actually, I, we went to Disney not too long ago. We rode Splash Mountain, and I had to take a picture of this. So you remember that song, uh, skippity doo -dah, skippity -doo? I do. There's that line, it's truth, it's actual. Something satisfactory. I don't know the next part, but it's truth is actual. When we rode Splash Mountain, at the very end, there's a projector that shines it on the wall. It says, it's truth, it's actual. And I just love that I had to turn around and take a picture of it. Because what is the truth except what is real? What is actual? I know, I pulled theology out of no, Disney. No, 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 it's okay. It's going to happen. Um, and so we have to remember that what we're talking about is true, and it cannot be not true, because that's not how truth is defined. Mm -hmm. Sorry, a little philosophy there. Um, so we get a couple ways. First, 
we get apostolic tradition, which kind of comes in in a lot of different ways. And Father, I'll kick that over to you to start us off, if you don't mind, unless you want me to continue. No, 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 it's fine. So, um, we're talking about Jesus' Jesus revealing himself to us. We have this first part of divine revelation comes from the apostolic tradition, because you've got to remember, it's not as though our Lord became incarnate, you know, in the of the Annunciation, and all of a sudden it's like, boom, we've got the New Testament. I mean, for the life of Christ, you know, and, and all the way through, you know, his passion, death, and resurrection, it's not as though we instantly had written documents. It's not as though the New Testament came to us in just a big bundle. You don't have the written documents in the beginning. So you have, you know, our Lord revealing himself to us. You've got the Word incarnate, Jesus Christ himself, the, you know, the oral tradition of what we're hand, what, what is handing on to the apostles. And so in paragraph 76, tells us about the apostolic tradition. And in keeping with the Lord's command, the gospel is handed on two ways, orally, by the apostles who handed on by the spoken word of their preaching, by the example they gave, by the institutions they established, what they themselves had received, whether from the lips of Christ, from his way of life and his works, or whether they had learned it at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. So, I mean, you think about that, like the apostles going out, you know, two by two, going out and proclaiming the good news to all the world. Um, them doing that after what they had learned and seen from our Lord, especially during his public ministry. And then you move on to, in writing, by those apostles and other men associated with the apostles who, under the inspiration of the same Holy Spirit, committed the message of salvation to writing. Uh, and so, like, early on, you've got this tradition of the apostles living out the gospel and going forward and proclaiming the good news to all the world. And that was very much the, very much the apostles, right? Mm-hmm. We're talking about the apostolic preaching, those first um, 12 men, right? Because Jesus was replaced. Um, going out and preaching because they were the handshake away. They had shook Jesus' hand. But then we go a little bit farther. Now we're getting two, we're getting three handshakes away. So now we have to see that there's this apostolic succession. And what this comes down to is that Jesus put these apostles in place as bishop. They were the leaders of the church, right? Specifically, Peter as the Pope. You are Peter, and on this rock I shall build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. So he is placing them in this authority. So even today, with our bishops, we understand that we have an unbroken line of apostolic succession. So we are trusting that our bishop today, Bishop Peter Jugas, can trace his ordination as bishop back to the hands of Jesus Christ in an unbroken line. And ultimately, every priest should be able to trace their, their line back. So with, but specifically with the bishops in this apostolic teaching, the bishops have a certain authority to transmit the faith. They are ultimately the leaders, the shepherds of the church, and their preaching has this um, this guidance by the Holy Spirit that they are carrying on that tradition in that succession of the apostles. And so what the apostles spoke, and what the apostles wrote, is being transmitted down to our bishops of today. And just fun fact, do you know who uh, ordained Bishop Jesus a priest? I know it was uh, St. John Paul II. It was. And, now t- correct me if I'm wrong, St. John Paul II can trace his ordination back to one of the Jameses, is what I oh, heard. Oh, that I don't know. Okay. I just know that it was St. John Paul Somebody II. Somebody fact-checked me on that. I feel like I heard at one point, 
It was James, I think the lesser that somehow he can trace it back to. Little James. That's Little really James. Cool. Yeah. No, that's um, great. But I could be, be totally wrong and just spouting hot air, which I normally do. But someone out there could probably figure that out for me. We should probably do that since we're the ones teaching. That's yeah. so good. But, you know, there's, there's the crowdsourcing. <laughs> we get everyone to participate, we can figure this out. It's good. Okay. Moving on. So then we continue to get the transmission of the faith. And this is where we see the great two wings of the eagle, in some ways, of sacred scripture and sacred tradition. That these are the ways in which this transmission of the faith has carried on this entire time. And we, as Catholics, love to be both and. Mm -hmm. We're very much a both and people, right? And so while our, a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters, really all of our Protestant brothers and sisters, have gone with sola scriptura, right? Taking out and removing that transition, tradition, really going back to Martin Luther, we hold on to that tradition. And what is this tradition ultimately, right? And I'm going to read a little bit right here. And holy tradition transmits in its entirety the word of God, which has been entrusted to the apostles by Christ the Lord in the Holy Spirit. It transmits it to the successors of the apostles so that, enlightened by the spirit of truth, they may faithfully preserve, expound, and spread it abroad by their preaching. Which this makes perfect sense at this point because we've talked about the how the apostles passed on the oral tradition because they didn't have the gospels at that point. They weren't written down. They later became written down, but very early on they weren't. And then we have the apostolic succession, and we're trusting that the bishops are taking this from the apostles and it's continuing down to the bishops. And all we're saying at this point is that the Holy Spirit is ultimately guiding that oral transmission of the faith and that apostolic succession. And we gave it a name, specifically capital T tradition. We'll talk about lowercase t tradition here in a moment, but this is why tradition is so important of this passing down of the faith. And we can recognize that there are some teachings, while they are reflected in Scripture, may not be as clear as we might like them in Scripture, but we knew they were true since the beginning of the apostolic age with the apostles, such as the Immaculate Conception. Mm -hmm. If you define the Immaculate Conception from Scripture, you can do it, obviously, because it's in Scripture. It is truth. You can find it there. But no one ever questioned it early in the church. It just was a, a given teaching of the Catholic Church. And that has been passed down through generation and generation through the guidance of the Holy Spirit and tradition. And we know it is true today. That's a good thing. And our Lord gives this to us. Um, and I love this, like, we have the one common source, I'm going to go to paragraph 80, mm -hmm. you know, that sacred tradition and sacred scripture then are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. For both of them, flowing out from the same divine wellspring, come together in some fashion to form one thing and move towards the same goal. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ, who promised to remain with his own always to the close of the age. So you think of that, how does Jesus remain with us? You've got these, you know, two, you know, ways of revelation, this apostolic tradition and sacred scripture, you know, going together. They work together. You don't have one without the other. As Michael said, it's like two wings of the eagle there, uh, of these things being handed down over time. Uh, and how else does our Lord remain with us even to the close of the age? 
And I think that two wings of the eagle analogy came from JP2 and Fetus at Ratio with faith and reason. That's faith right? and reason, yeah. So actually, I kind of took it and put it the analogy to something else. But you know what? I'm sure St. John I assume you're right, because actually mind. we're going to get to the Magisterium pretty soon. I've heard that called the uh, the three legs of the stool. So, oh, which gotcha. is a good one, too. Nice. I That's like a nice that. one. Yeah. Um, so then we see, obviously we know what Scripture is. I don't think we need to dive into that too much, right? And we're going to more next time anyway. Exactly. But your Bible. But the last line of 82 I really like. Both scripture and tradition must be accepted and honored with equal sentiments of devotion and reverence. These are on equal playing fields. One does not triumph over the other. They are on equal playing fields, which I think is so important, especially living very much in the Bible Belt and you know sure. southern United States of America. But and now, and that's the thing: the difficulty is the sola. I mean, we love scripture. I mean, I and I'll tell you, like we were saying before about this, like gradual recognition. Uh, just, I appreciate this this last Sunday. I'd never noticed this before, but about, you know, in the Gospel of John in chapter 12, when Mary anoints, Mary, uh, you know, sister of Martha and Lazarus, anoints the feet of Jesus, dries them with, it, with her hair. And, and Judas is all upset because that uh, genuine aromatic spikenard could have been sold for 300 days wages. And then he sells him out for 30 pieces of silver. It's like, at best, like 10% of what he was willing to sell the oil for? Like, are you kidding me? I mean, there's something so beautiful. And I think I read that. I think that was an Augustine uh, commentary that I just had never seen before. But it's incredible how these things, like, gradually, you know, it's ever ancient, ever new. There's new things you see every time you enter into uh, sacred scripture. But it, it's not as though the scripture just stands all by itself because we have the authentic tradition of the way that it's been interpreted over the years, too. Because if you just have a standalone book by itself, and you can see this in a lot of places, it can be interpreted by different people in different ways. But we have this authentic way it's been interpreted throughout the ages. It doesn't have to stand by itself as some sort of a disembodied book. You've got it within the living tradition of the faith, you know, in a way that takes into account our human nature as we continue to grow throughout the ages. Yeah. And then we take this tradition, right? And but we see it applied differently in the church. And I think I I think a lot of the paragraphs I'm pulling out of the catechism, I think I put my finger on it, is very much the apologetics of sure. the catechism in some ways. Because these are all questions that people ask. Well if you have sacred tradition, how come Father has six candles on the altar, but the church down the road only has two? Isn't that, isn't there a rule that you have to follow? And the answer is, that is tradition, but it's a lowercase t tradition. And that lowercase t tradition is the bells and whistles of the church. It very much is how we express the sacraments and how we express our faith. And within the Catholic Church, we, as the Roman Catholic Church, have the, this right of Rome, the Roman Catholic Church, but there are so many other traditions of the Catholic Church in the Eastern right of the Catholic Church. Um, and we can dig into this more later. Oh, but yeah. and that's 83, paragraph 83 even has like a little section on it, which is really good. Tradition, capital T, is to be distinguished from the various theological, disciplinary, liturgical, or devotional traditions, lowercase t, born in the local churches over time. These are the particular forms adapted to different places and times in which the great tradition, capital T, is expressed. In the light of tradition, capital T, these traditions, lowercase t, can be retained, modified, 
or even abandoned under the guidance of the church's magisterium. See, I try to put that into my own words, and then Father just reads it. <laughs> but, yeah. I think uh, it helps, because they're so clear. Exactly. It is very clear. And I just mumble for 10 minutes, when we could just read it for 30 seconds and be done. But, That's it. And so, as you travel to different churches, and as you do see different things, and every church has a slightly different flavor or style of doing things, remember it's still the same church. It's still the same capital T tradition, even when some of these lowercase t traditions change. And that does not change our faith. I know a lot of people can be caught up and bent up about some of the details, especially, you know, going from church to church or different places. And that's fine. You're going to find the flavor, if you will, that you like better. But don't be distracted by the flavor. Recognize that this lowercase t tradition it's supposed to help bolster and grow the uppercase T tradition um, and don't mix up the two. And it is kind of interesting how it talks about, you know, in light of the capital T tradition, these lowercase T traditions can be retained, modified, or even abandoned. I mean, sometimes something kind of develops over time. I mean, the local community is important, but sometimes if you start to stray and you're doing something that is at odds with the capital T tradition, I mean, that's where the magisterium, you know, the living teaching authority of the church, sometimes that's a step in and say, whoa, 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 like that development, that development's not authentic. You can't keep going with that. It's separate from the capital T tradition. And then the big question, this, and I think this is the most important section that we've talked about yet, maybe just my apologetics mindset. How do we interpret all this? We yeah. get scripture, we get tradition, but who has the authority to say what is what and what's not correct and what is correct? And this is where the church comes into play. The beauty of the Catholic Church, one holy Catholic apostolic church, they have this authority to essentially interpret the faith, interpret mm -hmm. scripture, interpret tradition. This is the bride of Christ, right? Left here on earth for us and for the good of our salvation, essentially. And they have the, the final say, ultimately, which, thanks be to God, they do, because what if they didn't? What if no one had the final say? What would happen? Well, unfortunately, we have a very clear example of what would happen in the thousands of different Protestant denominations that we have. We all have the same Bible. There's a couple translation differences. There might be a couple books missing. But when was the last time we read one of the books that are missing, or the Deuter Chronicle, in, in Mass? I mean... Very yeah. seldom do we even use them in the fullness of the Catholic tradition. Now they're there and they're important, but they don't come to light that often. But we're also, we're all using the same scripture, yet every single Protestant church we see has a different interpretation of that, where we as the Catholic church have one. And thanks be to God that we do, because it makes the Catholic church so much more simple and so much more easy in some ways to understand and embrace and live out because it should all be the same. And if it's not the same, you know somebody's wrong. Yeah, it's as simple those, as that. In those areas of faith and morals, I mean, it's so crucial to have that, yeah, the teaching authority of the faith. And, you know, once again, it's like our Lord promising he would be with us until the end of the age. You know, he pours out the Holy Spirit upon the church. And also the beautiful thing is, is to remember that it's not as though, like, the magisterium can just sort of, like, unhook itself from sacred scripture and sacred tradition. It can't. I mean, it's a continual, you know, uh, authoritative interpretation, a handing on 
of the deposit of the faith, giving to the faithful, giving to new, each new generation, as we say in our capital campaign, the inheritance of the faith. And so it's not as, as though a pope can come along and be like, eh, Jesus Christ wasn't really divine. No, I mean, you cannot do that. That is in bold contradiction to sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Um, and so we know it's like what the job of the magisterium is to do is to interpret and to hand on the gift that we've been given in the deposit of the faith, that economy of salvation. And I'm going to take three snippets from the next paragraphs, 85, 86, and 87, just to kind of blend them all together. The task of giving an authentic interpretation of the Word of God, whether in its written form or in the form of tradition, so it's combining Scripture and tradition, capital T tradition, has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. I think I underlined that three times. Alone. Jumping down a little bit, this means that the task of interpretation has been entrusted to the bishops in communion with the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome. Yet, this magisterium is not superior to the word of God, but its servant. I do love that. That's it so teaches good. only what has been handed on to it. They are the servants of this tradition in the word of God. They're not making anything new here, people. They are simply handing it on, handing it on and extrapolating and expanding as we talked about in paragraphs before, right? They're making it explicit for us. If I'm not mistaken, isn't one of the uh, traditional uh, titles of the Holy Father the servant of the servants of God, oh, yeah, right? Of like, so he is the servant to the word of God, like handing it on, not superior to it, but its servant. Basically, you know, he's there to strengthen the brethren, to unify the church, to hand on the sacred tradition that we've been handed, that we've been given. Not just the servant, the servant of the servants. Servant of the servants. So he's even, so if you say the bishops are the servants, he is supposed to be serving the servants, which are the bishops, or really any people of All God. All of us, yeah. And then 87 I really like, and I don't think you would read this one, but I'll read it on your Please behalf. Please do. Mindful of Christ's words to his apostles, he who hears you hears me. The faithful receive with docility the teachings and directives that their pastors give them in different forms. Listen to your pastor. That's what it's saying right here. He is part of the magisterium of the church. Even though he's a little lower down on the totem pole, he does have authority of our parish, which is much larger than just our church. Technically speaking, our parish is almost the entire Rowan County. Kannapolis steals a little tiny bit from us down the southwest uh, corner of it. But Father over here, has this authority over every single person in some ways and their spiritual well-being, whether they're Catholic or not, within the entire Rowan County. But remember, too, when Bishop Jugas came to install me as the pastor, I had to make the oath of fidelity. So once again, it's not as though I can come in here and, and like, make stuff up or, like, you know what, this is what I think about the faith. You know what, it doesn't really matter anymore if... I don't know, pick some moral teaching, like, ah, contraception, do whatever you want. I can't do that. It's not my, it's, it's, it's not within my authority. Like, I'm here to be a servant to sacred scripture, sacred tradition. I'm, I'm part of, I mean, like Michael said, I mean, it's nice of you to say a little bit low. I'm very low. I'm very low on the, on the, on the totem pole, on the uh, lowest rung on the ladder. However, like, my job is to hand on the faith not to come up with something new. Now, like we were saying before about the gradual unfolding of the faith, you know, it, it's the interesting thing about how with time it's like there's new beauty and insights or something being emphasized, but there's never like, I don't, 
introduce something new to the deposit of the faith. Does that make sense? Yeah, really. I mean, what your homilies are trying to do, which is your main form of speaking yeah. to the people in your parish, mm -hmm. is you're trying to, again, make explicit what is in Scripture. We are taking Scripture, and Father's trying to take that, digest it, and give it to us in a different packaging to apply to us today, who we are now, and how to apply this in our day-to-day -day lives. And that very much is exactly what this is talking about, where you're not saying anything new. You're just taking Scripture and taking Christ's words and doing exactly what the apostles did in some ways with the oral tradition of, hey, Jesus said this, and this is that correct interpretation of that. Now, obviously, he's ordained a priest with your seminary background and your studies. Thanks be to God, you're saying everything in union with Rome as well, Absolutely. right? That is his job. And so what he, what Father says and he's teaching to us and why we do need to listen to him is because he's telling us what the church teaches and how beautiful that is that we can have somebody in our own backyard that I get to sit next to and talk about the catechism at least once a month. Um, and we can learn from him and he could pass on the teaching because he is acting in persona Christi, in the person of Christ, and I am not. <laughs> Perfect. All right, where are we now? We're at dogmas of faith. Wow. So dogmas. And essentially what the church does is they take some teachings of the faith and they essentially elevate them and say, hey, these things are the things that you have to believe. There's no exception to the rule here. There's no gray area. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. This is a teaching that if you don't accept, you're starting to border some heresy. Yeah. So, and thank God once again for that. We don't have to wonder and be like, well, is it really this? Do we have to? I mean, we've been given these beautiful dogmas, these teachings of the church that remember, it's like it's helping us on towards salvation. Once again, we go back to that paragraph 51. What does God want? He's revealing himself to us. He wants us to share in his divine life. And we get there like through, you know, through these dogmas. It's not like he just throws us out in the middle of a pool. It's like, or, you know, in the middle of the ocean. Good luck, everybody. Like he gives us the teaching about the faith. He lets us know about himself. And thanks be to God, we have the guarantee that these dogmas are true. We don't have to wonder, like, you know, is this really what, what reality is about? We've been given that foundational reality. And it, in some ways that can sound restrictive, but it's not. It's like it's, it's always, you know, we, we can dive deeper and deeper into these truths that we've been given and understand them better and better with time. And I'm going to do the same thing you do. I'm going to summarize it with the catechism. Let's do it. Than you said it. 89, paragraph 89. Dogmas are lights along the path of faith. Yes. They illuminate it and make it secure. They're, imagine you're walking down a path and it's dark, and you've got these little lights on the side that can show you where the edge is so you can stay on the path. And how beautiful that is. So these dogmas are saying, hey, these are kind of the outskirts Mm -hmm. Right? Don't go past these or you're starting to get into the darkness and you're starting to get outside the church. But if you stay within these dogmas, you're going to stay within the light of that path. How beautiful that is. Oh, it's awesome. I mean, and, and that's the thing. It's not as though, for example, you know, we have uh, Interstate 85 right out there. It's not as though the, uh, you know, the lines on the side are like, they're, oh, how dare the government tell me that I can't drive down into the ditch? It's like, no, like you can, you can move in the right direction. Like if I want to get to Raleigh or Charlotte, I can do it because I have that help along the way. Um, I can kind of go about, you know, like within the lines, I can kind of understand some things, move around a little bit, but it helps me move in that right direction. Anyway, continue. Yeah. 
I think that's, that's so important. And then finally, we get into the faith as the faithful, right? So we as the faithful, in some ways, have a certain responsibility through our uh, anointing in confirmation and baptism as little Christ to hand on this faith. But we also are participating within the magisterium of the church to make sure that the church is guiding in the correct direction. Mm -hmm. So if, you know, we the people also have a part to play in this insofar as we're believing what the church teaches and by our belief, we're helping the church have that guiding light in the correct direction as well. And so we're all working together as this one holy Catholic apostolic church. And it's not the magisterium versus the people, the people versus the magisterium, or the people versus the bishops, or bishops versus the priests. We are all on that same path of light. And as long as we're all working together with that guidance of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be very clear that we're moving in the right direction. If we started to see somebody splinter off, there should be red flags mm -hmm. because something is wrong. And I'm going with the church and the magisterium, not whatever the splinter is, because I'm trusting that the Pope and the church are guided by the Holy Spirit. And the faithful should be participating in that, not trying to pull us one way or the other. I remember just as kind of a uh, small example of this. When I was in seminary, I remember we were reading uh, a particular theologian who really seemed to be, I mean, for lack of a better phrase, very full of himself. And it was just sort of like... All oh, those theologians. I very know, believe it or not. We'll just say it was one of them, right? Rather than saying about who the person actually was. But he was almost like decrying like the simple faith of like, you know, your day-to-day, -day, let's just say your daily mass goers, right? And I remember thinking, it's like, you know, buddy, like I think my grandma who prays the rosary every day, who goes to mass like every day that she can, although at that point in seminary, she was starting to weaken a little bit. But it's like, you know, like we... We hold each other in this together. Just because someone has an incredible intellect, that's the scary thing about the sin of pride is it can, you know, get its weasel its way into even good things. And you start to have some problems. And so when all of a sudden, like if someone is obviously very much too full of themselves and like I said, like poo-pooing the, you know, the devotional practice of the faithful, like praying the rosary, you know what I mean? Like, oh, you know, little peons, why would you do that? No, I mean, there, there's something so beautiful and you can see it in the way that, you know, we as the people of God pray and like people know it's like we need these things, these tangible things that help so much. And like, you, you work together to help each other keep growing in the knowledge, but also the practice of the faith. And so like this sense of spidalium, you know, it's like this, this knowledge is like, wait, why would you throw this stuff out? That doesn't make any sense. And we help each other to grow along in, in both knowing, loving, serving our Lord from day to day. I like what she said there. It's like, you know, there's no, we're not in competition. This is about being in communion with one another as the body of Christ. Hey, the Holy Spirit helps me say some good things every once in a I'm while. I'm impressed. Father. It's very good. And the other thing that I was going to pull out, if I can remember what I was going to say, oh, the mystical body of Christ. We're going to get on this in future in a future episode series. What are we calling these things? A future Catechism Installment. Class. Future classes? Future know. paragraphs that we talk Episodes? about? Episodes? Episodes? I don't know. We'll figure it out. But we'll talk about the mystical body of Christ. And I think I really liked what you said, that everyone has a role to play. Mm -hmm. And even if we look a little bit different, as long as, again, we're in those lights, in that path of dogma, even if we might look a little bit different, even if the lowercase t tradition is a little bit different, as long as we're within these lights, we're in the right spot. And yeah. I think that's really fantastic, too, is that the... Church gives us, in some ways, very 
broad oh, limits. Yeah, absolutely. That we, as long as we're in the, within those limits, the expression of our faith is still in line with the church. And that produces some really amazing things. Do you remember who said this? I think it was Hilaire Belloc. He said, what's the definition of the Catholic Church? Here comes everybody. Like, I really I have not heard that one, but I would not. De- it was probably Belloc or, or Chesterton. Chesterton. I just really love that quote. Cause, yeah, it's, we do have some wide boundaries, and that's the beautiful thing. You can go anywhere in the world and go to Mass, you know, and there's going to be some slightly different local adaptations, but the Mass is always going to be the Mass. And how incredible that is uh, to be able to have that um, all over the world for all the people of the world. Um, I think I read, was it today? Like a third of the world is Christian, I think. And I forget how many of those are, like a billion of them are Catholic. And just, I mean, that's, that's an incredible thing that almost no matter where you go in the world, you're going to encounter the church, the church that Christ founded and continues to guide by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit more and more into that divine life that he wants us to participate in. Then the final part is the growth and understanding of faith. I think the most important part here is that we need to understand that we don't have to understand it all. Thanks be to God that we don't. Yeah. Right? We're talking about how it's ever-growing, ever-new. How could we even bear to understand it all? We couldn't. What the church asks for us to do is have faith and to follow humbly and to trust. They don't ask us to understand. And that's what's so beautiful is that we're supposed to have a mind like a child. Children don't always understand why they do what they do, but they follow with a certain trust and a certain faith. And that's all that God is asking us to do. And I would say, though, to to that, because I agree with you, but it's like it's not as though it's like some sort of a weird, like, blind faith. Like, you know, uh, don't don't worry about that. Like, that's not for you to know. I mean, that's the cool thing about it. It's like, it's not like, I'm sorry, that's one of the hidden secrets. You can't know unless you're in the inner circle. No, it's not that. But it's faith-seeking understanding. And once again, it's like the way that God gradually reveals things over time. Even for each of us. Like, I feel like in the last seven years of being pastor at Sacred Heart, my faith has grown. And the different experiences that I've had and just continuing on in the priesthood, continuing to study scripture, continuing to learn the catechism, you know, continuing to move into these things and hearing different insights, like the ones that Michael has, the ones you hear, frankly, from the kids, like giving homilies at the mass for the school and I'm asking them questions. Inevitably, they come at it from a totally different angle. It's like, yeah, you got that better than I did, buddy. You know, and it's a beautiful thing how we can all come together in this and God continues to make himself known in these beautiful ways. We have guaranteed, but it never gets boring because it continues to grow and we can continue to love him more and more. And what I was saying was not a I know acceptance to be ignorant. But I think a lot of people look at the faith and they just look they just feel exhausted. Sure. Like where am I supposed to start? I mean it's a big book. What am I supposed know? to do? How yeah. am I supposed to know all these things? You don't have to. No. Just trust and follow, and you will learn through that divine pedagogy. I like using that term now. It's that a I great know what term. It means. Yeah. He will reveal it to us each individually in our understanding with time. And He'll the take you by the hand. Gives yeah. us a couple ways to do this, right? Study. There is an inexhaustible amount of books and things out there that you can dive into. One thing that I would highly suggest log into Formed, yeah. right? We pay as a parish for membership to Formed. It's free for all of you. If you've never been on Formed, let me know. I'll definitely get you in on Formed. 
but it has so many great resources for free that you can log into. You can go on great websites. Um, Father Mike Schmitz has a great podcast. There's That's tons right. of podcasts out there right now on the Catholic faith. You can dive into, if you're a little bit more traditional, like feeling the paper, you can dive into books, you find movies. Father was talking about in his homily today, the new, Chosen. The yeah. new series called the, Cho the, Chosen. the Chosen. Fantastic. I haven't seen it yet, but I'm going to maybe over Holy Week. That might be my Holy Week um, focus. Um, but studying, one way to do that. Another way, prayer. Yeah. Just, just pray about it. The beautiful thing is God revealed this to man. Every teaching of the church, God revealed to man, whether through our natural reason and natural revelation or through divine, more supernatural divine revelation. If he revealed it to them, he'll reveal it to us again too, if we put that trust in him. So take things to prayer if you struggle with a teaching of the Catholic Church. The church is true, and if we accept that, then we just have to figure out how to enter into that communication. Enter, yeah. enter into that communication and trust that with what the love. church is telling us. And I, can I just throw out two things? Go for it. Okay, one, because I love this quote from G.K. Chesterton, so good. I think it's in his book, Orthodoxy. We talked about the difference between like that childlike faith that Michael is talking about versus basically becoming insane. He said that you know the the person with childlike faith, or we'll do this first. The person who's insane tries to get all of the heavens into his head, and his head cracks. The one who has that childlike faith just tries to get his head into the heavens and just uh, you know appreciate the stars. But that's the thing, like there's more and more all the time to appreciate, to learn, to love, to know, as opposed to trying to get it all crammed into your head. It's, it's a gradual unfolding and learning and knowing, and that is just so incredible. There was a second thing, but now I forget what it was. I just love that, that quote so much. Hey, that is a great quote, and I've heard awesome? you use that quite a few times. I've read Orthodox, and I don't remember that one. There was another one that I thought you were going to go with about... And I don't know the quote, so I'm going to kind of butcher it, about closing your teeth on something. And feeling oh, yeah, he's talking about being open-minded. Yeah. He said eventually you have to close it on something or you don't go anywhere. It's like, okay, having infinite choice. You can go to Baskin-Robbins. There's 34 flavors. But if you don't choose one and lock down on it, you don't get to enjoy any ice cream. Um, the other thing I was going to say, because I did finally think of it, it's amazing to me where I feel like the homilies that mean the most for me, that I feel like I get the most out of and I feel like, go the best are the ones when I first approach the scripture for that weekend, I'm like, what am I going to say? Like, I have no idea. Like, sometimes I think the ones that are the worst, it's like, oh yeah, I know this gospel, it'll be fine. Like, I'm going to say this. But when I have to like wrestle with scripture and really get into it and look into it, and look at the context and look at all these different things, it's like I need to dive in more and more. And it's sort of, you know, it's a humbling thing. And anytime we approach the faith in this way, it's humbling because we don't already have all the stars in our head, right? We're just trying to get our head into the heavens rather than getting the heavens into our head. Um, but when we approach it in that way, with that docility, I talked about before, like having docility for your pastors, being able to be taught, looking at this, appreciating it. I mean, we've got the pearl of great price, right? We've got uh, this treasure right in front of us to appreciate it and to know, like to not approach it in an arrogant way. It's like, ah, I already know all that. Enter into it with that sense of docility, and you're never going to be disappointed. I mean, you may be challenged. You may have to wrestle with things. This is a hard thing when it comes to morality. When it's like, I have to let go of this. Like, yeah, sometimes, you know, it's like it doesn't cost anything to be a Christian, so to speak, but you have to give everything. You know, it, it's just, it's incredible. But to, to approach it with that humility and to know 
You're not going to get it all in your head all at once, but that's okay because it's a continual growing, a gradual unfolding with time. And the last point that I want to make, you actually tied in very nicely. Perfect. The last way we can understand faith is through the preaching of others, right? Father doesn't just stand up at the ambo every single Sunday, really every single day, just to talk to himself, right? He already did the research. He read the scripture. He's been thinking about this all week most of the time, at least for Sundays, sometimes yeah. two weeks in advance if he gets ahead of himself. Um, it's usually this one. But we, the faithful, are there to learn too. And this is how he, Father, and all those in the clergy are going to help us grasp the faith. And so through the study, through prayer, and through the preaching of others are the three ways the catechism kind of outlines for us to grow in that understanding of faith. Another really fun resource that we have, Father's homilies are online. Every Sunday homily for, we're almost up to two years now. It's pretty No, amazing. actually, aren't we over two years and we're coming up on the third year? I think we might be because I feel like right, like it was even before COVID time. I think you're like, we hit a year. I think we, so I think we did two because I think I started Advent one, you know, two years ago. So when we finish this year, we'll have completed the whole cycle of scripture. That's awesome. Which will be amazing. So then you can go back and say, what did I preach about three years ago on year A? But I won't do that because I can't stand listening to my own voice. So Well, you all can listen to the Sunday <laughs> homily and say, what did Father say three years ago on the same gospel reading? And you can see how it's ever growing and ever new and how he says something totally different. Yeah. Or he says the exact same thing because he only has about 100 examples that he just cycles through. Yeah, that's true. And I'll say, God bless you. It must be Lent because you're listening to my voice. <laughs> awesome. Well, I think that was pretty good. What time did we end up at? That was okay, it. we only went 25 minutes over. Eh, I mean, 10 of that was discussing the Garden of Eden. It was, which we'll go into further. Yeah, I think we're actually on the same page. I think we're just looking at it slightly different. And I think we also learned we should avoid tangents because yeah, that the, didn't go we well. might do a tangent episode just for fun. But I think if we stick to the catechism, we work better. I would say, though, for the just for fun stuff, really do send us your questions. Because did you get any this time? I did not. I didn't either. It's okay. That's fine. We can just kind of keep, but it would be good like if anybody has any questions or you want us to go in more deeper on something or if you look ahead. So next time for the next class, we'll look at a paragraph 100 to 149. Yeah, we're going to cut it off a little short just to kind of end at a nice spot. Yeah, so 100 to 149. You look ahead at that, you think, I'm just not sure. I really want to make sure you pay attention to paragraph 122. Like, great, do that. It can kind of help us, you know, shape it a little bit. Otherwise, it'll just be the two of us talking like we did today. Exactly, and we will answer questions. If we have questions, we'll obviously we went long. I don't think we want to set a precedent by that. Nah, we I think we'll, we'll shoot for an hour. I mean, if we're an hour ish, yeah. probably but not a full twenty five. If you give us questions, we will try our best to cut it at fifty minutes to have ten minutes for questions. So we don't know how to do this thing. This is the first time we've ever done this. We want you to help us shape it, and if it changes or grows or ever old, ever new, ever growing, ever changing, I mean, we could be like scripture. There you go. And actually, hopefully this time, too, the technical stuff did better because Mike worked really hard. Get the camera better. We're wearing mics. Um, I spent like three hours doing my hair. No, I didn't. I'm just kidding. Um, I had my makeup <laughs> artist in the back room over there. No, but I mean, it's, you know, we want to make this as good as it can be. Um, I'd like to have theme music, but I don't think that's going to happen. But it's just good to be together as a parish um, and to walk through the catechism. I mean, it's, gosh, it's such a treasure and a resource. And uh I mean, just today, just reading through those paragraphs, like I told Michael, I was, you know, just, gosh, I loved paragraph 66. Like, there's just so many things that sometimes, like, yeah, you're, this is awesome. And to get this gift of our faith, it's just such a good thing, and we're glad we can share it with you, and we should probably wrap up. But I have an idea for 
theme music since you mentioned it. Yeah. So, fun anecdote. When Father Rossi was here, God bless him. If you're watching Father Rossi, thank you for watching. <laughs> um, when he was here at the school, when we would wrap up the school year or some special occasion, we'd go on Christmas break, he would get his phone. He'd find a song somehow on his phone. He would go up to the PA system, do the PA, you know, all call, and just stick his phone on full volume right next to the speaker of the phone, which is fine. Great. The kids loved it. We happen to have a speaker system in our hallway that must be three times louder than I every mean, other speaker least. in the hallway. And even the outdoor speakers. Yeah. Father Rossi would start his song and we would just all slam our doors shut because we were like, uh-oh, and just slam the doors because we just couldn't stand it. But the kids loved it. So thank you, Father Rossi, for doing that. But what I was trying to get at, you should come up with a song each week. Like every And time. so while I'm making sure that it's working, just, just take your it. mic and stick it up to your phone. And we're probably breaking tons of copyright laws by doing that. But that'd be fun if we had a little sneak peek into what Father Eckert is listening to each week for like 30 seconds while I make sure things are working. It's not a bad idea. Although, I don't know that I listen to things that are that different. Like, I listen to the same stuff all the time. The album from Fatima, they have like an album. I mean, that's who I am. Uh, it's the music from the shrine. Or the Hillbilly Thomas, which I highly recommend. Group of Dominican priests who have awesome bluegrass music. Mm. One of the songs, uh, Bourbon Bluegrass in the Bible, fantastic. And then, who was, what was the band you cited right around Advent uh, about the nativity scene? I, oh, the Oh Hellos. Yes. The Oh Hellos Christmas album, which you can listen to any time of year because it is so good. I thought you were going to say the Carpenter family. And when we were listening to, I forget. And oh, I do love a Carpenter Because it was Christmas. your little Christmas message you did yeah. on the side. And you mentioned an album, and I told my wife, Carpenter's Here comes Carpenter's. Nope. And he totally threw a curveball at me. I thought I knew this man, and apparently I don't. Nope. I think I'd had a funeral that day, and that album, like, it's just, because it starts off with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, which is kind of like bittersweet, melancholic, right? And then it goes into, like, this awesome sort of crescendo into O Come, All Ye Faithful, or O Come, Let Us Adore Him. It gets into this awesome, like, joy to the world thing. It's so good. And then there's Silent Night, and, it, and like, it's, it's like this awesome mix of praise and worship and, like, a little bit of traditional, modern, like folksy, and then it ends with O Come, O Come, Emmanuel again. Like this cool like way of ending it back out. And it's just like this already but not yet summary of the faith. Honestly, listen to it any time of year. It's what a so great day good. to listen to it on the Annunciation. I know. I think I'm going to. You I'm might. really glad you brought that and up. And it's a solemnity. You can have a beer. Yeah. You can listen to Oh Hellos. Right? Yeah, the Oh Hellos. Oh Hellos. I mean, they also have a great, great song called Hello My Old Heart, which is basically like a summary of one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. But we'll talk about that another time because there's the five o'clock bells. It's an hour and a half. Let's say a prayer. We'll give you a blessing. Thanks for listening to our witty banter. If it was really witty. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Dear Lord, thank you for the gift of our faith. Thank you for the gift of your presence among us, especially on this Feast of the Annunciation. Thank you once again through the through the intercession of our Blessed Mothers, we pray. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now at the hour of our death. Amen. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Almighty God bless you, the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.